And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. If you would just stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. This is Romans chapter 9 beginning at verse 1. Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just ask that you would take the next few minutes and speak truth into our hearts. We see a burden that Paul has for his fellow Jews and for their salvation. And so, God, I pray that you would use it to uh, spur us on in that same way, Father, to deepen our love for the lost, our desire to share the good news of Jesus with them. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, you may be seated. Well, I just need, I need to begin by saying that this is a difficult sermon for me to preach simply because I fall so far short of Paul's example uh, that he has uh, displaying his deep burden for the lost in our passage. I can't fathom ever making a statement like we see here um, that he would be willing to be eternally damned if it would result in the salvation of his countrymen, the Jews. Now, for years, I've had on my prayer list that God would give me a deeper burden for the lost. I pray often for lost people to come to salvation, and I try to preach the the gospel faithfully. But I don't understand how anyone could say what Paul says here. And to be honest, I'm just not there. So I've got a lot of room to grow, and maybe you do too. Now, the mood of Romans shifts dramatically in chapter 9. Paul's just ended chapter 8 rejoicing in the glorious fact that absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. But then he abruptly shifts gears, telling of his great sorrow and unceasing grief, even to the point of wishing that he could be separated from Christ on account of the sad spiritual condition of the Jews. Now, in spite of their great spiritual privileges, for the most part, they were alienated from their Messiah. This abrupt abrupt change of moods, uh, it signals that we're moving into a new section of Romans. It begins here in chapter 9 and ends and goes all the way through chapter 11. Now, it's a difficult section in many ways. Some of it's difficult to understand, and even if you understand it, some of it is difficult to accept. Romans 9 is one of the strongest statements of the sovereignty of God in all of Scripture, and many struggle with with that doctrine. They don't like what they what it, they think that it implies with regard to human free will, and and so they try to explain away Paul's four really strong statements in this chapter. Others get so carried away with God's sovereignty that they end up practically denying human responsibility. 
But the Bible is clear that sinners are responsible uh, to repent and to believe in Christ. But when they do repent and believe, it is totally due to God's sovereign grace so that no one may boast. But it may, to hear, may surprise you to hear that God's sovereignty, that's not the main point of Romans chapter 9, although it is, it is there in bold. Uh, rather, Paul brings up that topic simply to support the main theme. Now, here's why Romans 9 through 11 is crucial to the overall argument of Romans and to your life. In Romans chapter 8, Paul has just given us the wonderful, reassuring truth that all whom God foreknew and predestined to salvation will be saved and glorified for all eternity so that Christ Jesus will have the preeminence. Now he ends the chapter with that strong assurance that absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of God. But if you know anything about the Old Testament... That raises a huge problem. The Old Testament is clear that the Jews were God's chosen people. God promised to bless them and to bless all of the nations of the earth through them. But you see, when Paul wrote Romans, most of the Jews were rejecting Jesus as their Messiah. And many of them were also persecuting those like Paul who claimed that Jesus was their Messiah. So the problem is this. In light of the Jews' reaction to Christ, has God's promises or purpose to bless the Jews, has it failed? He actually asks asks in verse 6, it is not as though the word of God has failed, has it? And if God's purpose for them, for the Jews, has failed, then how do we know that His purpose to save us will succeed? How do we know that nothing can separate us as His chosen people from His love in Christ when, in fact, the Jews are now separated from Christ? Now, that question governs Romans chapter 9 through 11. In verses 1 through 5, Paul shows us his heart for the lost. The lesson is not very hard to see. We should be burdened for the salvation of lost souls because the love of Christ and the love of God's truth impel us. So first, we should be burdened for the salvation of lost souls because the love of Christ impels us. This is verses 1 through 3. And you may look at those verses and say, well, I don't see any mention of of the love of Christ in verses uh, 1 through 3. But there's three reasons that I believe that this was behind Paul's burden for his lost brethren. First, he's just finished there in the previous chapter in verses 35 through 39, extolling the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The gracious love that Paul had experienced and received when he was yet a sinner, that impelled him to want his countrymen to experience that same type of love. Well, second, in, in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul, tells, Paul tells us to imitate Him just as He has imitated Christ. And that it was Christ's love that moved Him to lay down His life for His sheep. Think about this. Paul's hypothetical willingness to be damned if it meant the salvation of the Jews, that reflects Christ's actual willingness to bear the wrath of God on behalf 
of His sheep. Well, third, in 2 Corinthians 5.14, this is in an evangelistic context, Paul states, for the love of Christ controls us. You see, Christ's love that reached down to us in our sin should impel us to reach out to other sinners with the good news that if they will trust Christ, He will save them. Now note four things here. A, it is possible to have great sorrow and great sorrow over the lost and at the same time to have great joy in Christ. Paul has just exuberantly told of God's great love for us in Christ, but now he tells of his great sorrow and unceasing grief. He, he's not bipolar. He's not going from super high to super low. No, he's just as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. That's what he says in 2 Corinthians 6.10. It's possible to be both sorrowful and yet rejoicing at the same time. Here's something very interesting. Most of you guys in here will know this. What is the shortest uh, verse in the English New Testament? I'll tell you what the verse is. It's John 11.35. But those of you that know it, say it with me. One, two, three. Jesus wept. That's a verse of profound sorrow. Jesus, God, our Creator, weeping. Does anybody know what the shortest verse in the Greek New Testament is? Tyler? No? Okay. It's uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.16. John 11.35, Jesus wept. 1 Thessalonians 5.16, rejoice evermore. The two shortest verses in Scripture cover the gamut. If I focused on the sad condition of lost people to the extent that I only had great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, then I'd be very depressed. Probably wouldn't be able to sleep at night. I wouldn't, would not reflect the joy of the Lord. On the other hand, if I was so filled with the joy of my salvation that I never felt any sorrow or grief for the lost, I'd probably be very self-centered and calloused. I need both the joy of salvation that moves me to want others to know the same joy along with the sorrow over the sad condition of the lost so that I reach out to them in kindness and compassion. Well, B, we should be especially a burden for the salvation of those with whom we share a natural affinity. Now, this is not to say that we should not cross social, cultural, linguistic, or nationalistic borders to uh, share the good news. How will such people hear about Jesus unless somebody goes to tell them? After all, you've got Paul, the Pharisaical Jew, who is called to be the apostle to the Gentiles. That's crazy. But it is to say that God has given us a natural affinity with some around us. And if you're in Wakulla County and are from here, then you've got lots of natural affinity around here, whether you know it or not. We need to cross that natural bridge to share the good news with your kinsmen according to the flesh. Each of us has 8 to 15 people that God has placed in our relational world, our, our sphere of influence. Through us, or through, yeah, through us, He wants to get the gospel to these people. 
Identify those 8 to 15 people. Begin to pray for them. Ask God to soften their hearts, to give them opportunities to show His love and grace to them in either word or deed. But maybe some of those 8 to 15 people have hurt you or treated you badly. What then? Well, see, we should be burdened especially for the salvation of those who have hurt us the most. Who persecuted Paul just about everywhere he went? The Jews. Who was Paul burdened for most? The Jews. Now, I could understand if he had just said, let them go to hell. They deserve it. I might have been prone to say something stupid like that. But instead, his heart desire, his prayer for them was for their salvation. Now, I'm not saying that if you've been physically or sexually abused, that you should put yourself into that situation again and, and, uh, and, and uh, that would further expose you to abuse. That, that wouldn't, be, wouldn't be wise. I am saying that you should pray often for the salvation of those who have hurt you. Maybe you won't be the one to share the gospel with them, but you can pray that God will bring somebody into their life that will share the good news of Christ with them. And if you do have contact with them, well, maybe you could respond to verbal abuse with the kindness and love of Christ. We're all called to do that. Well, D, lost people won't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Now, that's a familiar saying, uh, but it really captures a truth that oozes out of verse 3. It's where Paul says that he could wish himself accursed and separated from Christ for the sake of his fellow Jews. Now, that is such a radical statement. Look at what, look at what Paul has to say in the first verse. Verse 1, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears or testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. This is a threefold testimony saying, what I'm about to say is true. Some of his Jewish enemies thought that Paul had forsaken his Jewish heritage and, 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 and for the sake of the despised Gentiles. But before God, Paul testifies that he had such a deep concern for the Jews that he was willing to give up his own salvation if it meant that they could be saved. Now, as I've said, I, I can't imagine say, saying such a thing. How are, to we, how are we to understand it? There are various interpretations. I'm not, not going into those. You can look them up if you'd like to. I think that Paul is speaking hypothetically. He has just said that it is impossible for anything to separate us from God's love. Here, he's trying to convey how deeply he was burdened for the salvation of the Jews. Paul knew that such a prayer was not permissible. It would not result in salvation of the Jews. But he's showing us how much he cared for the salvation of his lost kinsmen, those Jews. It's hard to square Paul's uh, compassion for all the Jews with Exodus 33:19 which he is going to quote in verse 15 it's where God tells Moses I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion that statement implies that God does not have compassion alike on everyone and the subsequent plagues on the Egyptians they proved that but the difference is God is God and we are not he is free to show mercy to some and to harden others. 
He's going to go on to say that in verse 18. But we need to show compassion to all, knowing that God will use the display of His love through us to save those who believe and to judge those who refuse to believe. So pray that the love of Christ will control you to such an extent that you, you will show His love even to those who have mistreated you, who, who deserve His judgment. Ask God to give you a burden for the lost. Now let's just take a couple minutes and look at the last uh, couple of verses here. Uh, the second major point, we should be burdened for the salvation of lost souls because the love of God's truth impels us. Now again, you may wonder, where do you see the love of God's truth in these verses? Well, Paul desperately wanted to see the Jews saved, not because of his love for them alone, but also because of the love of the truth of God's promises to them. He didn't want to think people, he didn't want people to think that the word of God had failed. That's how he's going to start in verse six. Now, three quick observations here. A, our primary motive for seeing lost souls should be God's glory. Even beyond Paul's compassion for his fellow Jews was his zeal for God's glory. That's the driving force of chapters 9 through 11. These chapters are a defense of God's word and his glory against a serious problem that seeming, seemingly could undermine his ability to fulfill his promises, namely the widespread unbelief of the Jews. Again, remembering what God's promised in the Old Testament. Okay, come New Testament time, they look in the vast majority of Jesus, of uh, Jews are rejecting Jesus as their Messiah. So how does this all fit together? Well, B, we should be especially burdened for the salvation of those who enjoy the greatest spiritual privileges. The Jews had unique spiritual privileges, but they were still lost. Great spiritual privileges will not save anyone unless they respond to these privileges. The Jews' rejection of Christ, it shows that salvation is not just a matter of considering the evidence and then making a rational decision to follow God. The fallen human heart is spiritually dead. The difficulty with many lost people is that they trust in their religious um, privileges not in the Savior. What a tragedy to be religiously zealous but lost. Salvation is not a matter of spiritual privilege alone, but rather of God's sovereign grace that imparts life to dead sinners. Now Paul lists nine spiritual privileges that God gave to the Jews. First, they were Israelites. The name focuses on the descendants of Jacob. You remember he wrestled the angel and he says, now he says, what's your name? Jacob? Nope. It's Israel from now on. Douglas Moo says that it suggests a people chosen by God to belong to him in a special way and to be the vessels of his plan of salvation for the world. Well, second, they had the adoption as sons. Now, this doesn't mean that all the Jews were saved. Rather, it refers to God's adoption of the nation as His chosen people. Third, they had the glory. 
This refers to God's glory being displayed in their midst on numerous occasions. That's an incredible privilege by itself. Fourth, they had the covenants that God made with Abraham, Moses, and David. God didn't enter into such covenants with other nations. Fifth, they received the law, which told them how to live in a manner pleasing to God. Sixth, they received God's pattern of temple service. Uh, God revealed the various feasts and sacrifices that Israel was to observe. Well, seventh, they received God's promises. That covers all of God's covenant blessings. Eighth, they were descended from the fathers of the Jewish faith, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And finally, they were the race that brought the Christ according to the flesh in the world. Jesus was a Jew. Now, not these specific privileges, but you are privileged if you were raised in a Christian home and and grew up in the church. You probably don't realize how privileged you are if that's the case. You see, there are billions of people in the world who, according to Paul, are separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. That's There's several billion people on this earth that that is their lot. But your great spiritual privilege, it will become a great spiritual liability that will testify, that will testify against you at the judgment if you do not repent of your sins and trust in Christ. Now, there's also an application for the rest, for us who have been, who have responded to God's grace. Don't assume that just because someone you know is a lifelong member, uh, a church member, or grew up in a Christian home, don't assume that they're saved. As great as a privilege it is to be exposed to these truths, each person must repent and believe for these uh, privileges to become actual blessings. Make sure that your family or your friends who grew up in the church be sure that they truly know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We'll see the salvation of lost people requires that they come to know Jesus Christ as God in human flesh. Paul ends verse 5, According to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Well, there is some debate over how to translate, how to punctuate that verse. The original Greek did not have any punctuation. Uh, some argue that it, because it is somewhat uncharacteristic of Paul to directly call Christ God, that that last phrase must be a separate benediction referring to God the Father. But there are solid grammatical, logical, and biblical reasons to accept this as a direct statement of Christ's deity. First, it balances the affirmation of His humanity that's mentioned in the verse before. Second, the Greek word order favors it. Third, a joyful doxology seems out of place here, and it would be an abrupt change of subject. Fourth, and this is one of the most uh, telling to me, the early fathers, the early church fathers, whose native language was Greek, they understood it this way. When they read it, they go, oh, he's just called Jesus God. (laughs) And fifth, there are at least five other texts where Paul clearly refers to Jesus 
as God. The gospel is not believe in Jesus, however you may conceive Him to be. Uh, rather, it's believe in the Lord Jesus Christ revealed in Scripture, who is eternal God in human flesh, who offered Himself as a sacrifice for our sins, who was raised bodily from the dead. The Mormons and the Jew, uh, Jehovah's Witness, they claim to believe in Jesus, but their Jesus is not the eternal Son of God. Salvation depends on believing in Jesus as Lord, which means God. Now, are you burdened for the salvation of lost souls? If you're anything like me, uh, you have to answer honestly, not as much as I should. Frankly, I, I may never be burdened to the degree that Paul was, where I would be willing to forfeit my salvation if it meant the salvation of other lost souls. But ask God to give you a burden for the lost. Pray for the lost, especially those that you have frequent contact with. And when God gives the opportunity, share the gospel with the lost. Pray for missionaries and give so that they can take the gospel to those who have never heard about Christ. And perhaps some of you will sense that God is calling you to cross linguistic and cultural barriers to take the gospel to the lost. The love of Christ and the love of God's truth, that should impel us to have a burden for lost souls. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your abundant love for us. We thank you that it's in Christ and in Christ alone that we find salvation. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would just speak to our hearts this morning. If there's anybody here today that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, that they would turn to you wholeheartedly, Father. And uh, God, I just pray that you would help us all to be more burdened for the lost, more aware of their need of the gospel. And we have the gospel. We know the gospel. The gospel is Jesus. And so God, I pray that you would burden our hearts. Do it for your name's sake. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're just going to have a, a, a short um, song of invitation. Uh, give you a chance to respond. Uh, now, Brother Ken, he did, he did a good job a while ago telling you the basics of the gospel. Uh, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That's the basis of salvation. God loves you. All right. We've all sinned. We've fallen short of the glory of God. We're separated from God. And it's only through Christ that we are reconciled with Him today. If you do not know God through His Son, Jesus Christ, that can only be done by asking God to forgive your sins, and trusting in the work that Jesus completed on the cross. You can be saved today, a new creation, as Paul says. I encourage you to do that today. If you're a believer, I hope that you've just had a little, uh, I don't know, prick in the side, a little elbow jab saying, hey, uh, you need a little bit more boldness. You need a little bit more burden for the lost. Uh, it, the least you can do is pray more. For the lost. And when God gives you, gives you the opportunity, do something for the lost. Maybe even talk to them. Share the goodness of Jesus with them. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, CrawfordvilleFBC.com.